Hello, my name is Jack Forrest, and you're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. We first had the idea for this podcast, spelling it out, last spring. We wanted to explore big issues in a smaller way on the University of Oregon campus. This first idea, guns in the Second Amendment, wasn't an easy place to start. But when we found professor of law and former judge, David Schumann, we knew we were well on our way. Schumann was a UO law professor who went on to become deputy attorney general in Oregon and a justice on the Oregon Court of Appeals. Like any great professor, Schumann taught us a lot about the Second Amendment before we even got him in the podcast booth. He printed out pages of old cases, shared his personal experiences, and basically held our hand as we tried to discuss a difficult topic. We are releasing this episode to remember Judge Schumann and all of his contributions to UO and the state of Oregon. Now here's our conversation with him. This is the first episode of our new series, Spelling It Out, where I discuss campus perspectives surrounding a political topic every term. We bring in guests from the University of Oregon community to give their expertise and show us the impact of these issues locally. This episode, we're focusing on the Second Amendment with Judge David Schumann, former Oregon Deputy Attorney General and judge on the Oregon Court of Appeals. All right. Well, just to start out, how are you doing today? Doing good. <laughs> good. Doing good. So we're doing a little podcast on the Second Amendment, and uh, you are a professor at the University of Oregon. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience just to start out? Sure. I was um, actually was an English teacher for 10 years, and then I started law school here in um, 1981. And when I graduated, I clerked at the Oregon Supreme Court for a year. I was in the uh, Department of Just- Oregon Department of Justice for a couple of years. Then I came back and I was in the faculty at the law school between 1987 and 1996. In 1996, I was appointed to be the Deputy Attorney General uh, under Hardy Myers uh, of Oregon. I did that for four years and then I was appointed to the Oregon Court of Appeals. I sat on the Oregon Court of Appeals for 14 years, and I retired in, uh, in um, I guess, five years ago. And since that time, I've been back to law school half-time. My official title, I think, is Professor of Practice. And I'm also still a senior judge on the court, so I do some, uh, some judging as well as teaching. I teach Introduction to Criminal Law and Constitutional Law. Awesome. So you talked a little bit about your experience, you know, in the Oregon Court of Appeals Mm -hmm. and as Deputy Attorney General. So, you know, how often did Second Amendment issues come up when you were sitting on that court or when you were Deputy Attorney General? Well, I have to I have to explain something about the relationship between the Oregon protection of the right to bear arms in the Oregon Constitution and the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment. tells states the minimum amount of gun rights, gun possession rights, that they have to afford their own citizens. But states in their own constitutions are allowed to confer on their own citizens additional uh, uh, rights under under the right to bear arms. So I think that on my 14 years at the Court of Appeals, I never saw a Second Amendment case. <laughs> yeah. I saw um, I saw cases under the Oregon Constitution, and I didn't see a lot of them. I didn't see a lot of them. I would say in 14 years, and this isn't just cases that 
opinions that I wrote, uh, I would say that the court itself in all of those years probably didn't see more than a dozen yeah. uh, right-to-bear arms cases. Um, I remember some in particular. We had a case actually was argued down here at, uh, at the law school about whether a um, middle school teacher in, I believe it was Medford, could carry a, a weapon in, um, in class because she was afraid of uh, a person against whom she had a stalking protective order. And then I had a long case involving an ordinance, a Portland ordinance, about when, um, when a person could carry a weapon in an automobile going to and from uh, a firing range. But um, basically, the law was pretty well settled by the time, um, by, by, by the early part of this, of this century, and we really didn't get a lot of uh, new, new occasions to, to elaborate. You touched a little bit about the difference between, you know, the Second Amendment and Oregon's uh, representation of that. And mm -hmm. so how does that, you know, when you get down to the law, how does that kind of differ? And how does a state law... Um, provide more rights than you know the federal law might. Well, when it comes to when it comes to the right to bear arms, there aren't a lot of differences. There aren't a lot of differences. If anything, uh, Oregon has Oregon has a much more elaborated statutory background to the right to bear arms. The gun lobby in uh, Oregon very powerful. At one point, they they. Um, successfully lobbied in favor of legislation that said that no state agency, local government um, body, or any, any other governmental entity could limit the, right f the rights of people to bear arms in the particular facility with a couple of exceptions. One of the exceptions was courthouses. As far as I know, there isn't an exception for public universities. We haven't had, uh, I'm on the Student Conduct Committee and the uh, University Appeals Board, and I've been on that, on that group for, for three or four years, and I don't think I've seen any incidents of uh, students carrying guns, uh, at least that, that, got to the, that got to that level. Oregon doesn't really provide a lot of additional protections to the right to bear arms over and above um, the, the, the Second Amendment. Okay. There's some interesting case law in Oregon about what counts as a arms. At one point, the Oregon, the Oregon Supreme Court took this very sort of originalist approach to interpreting the Constitution and, and held that if a particular form of weapon didn't exist in 1859 when the Oregon Constitution was enacted, uh, then it wasn't covered. That case, I think, involved a switchblade knife or something, mm -hmm. or brass knuckles. But that's, that's sort of been modified, and now uh, something will qualify as an arm that uh, people have a right to bear if it is something that existed in 1859 or as a modern, a sort of modern elaboration on that. So uh, you talked about how the, I think it was State versus Delgado was the mm -hmm. case that mm -hmm. uh, they took that originalist approach. Yes. So yes. is, so they since then have 
amended that and made it so that you can't take that approach? Yeah, right? they've they they didn't really overrule it. They just more or less modified it by by adding the proviso that a uh, a modern development or equivalent of those kinds of weapons. With your experience on the Court of Appeals, you tried one really interesting case. Um, I thought was State versus Christian. Yes. Uh, would you mind just kind of talking about that a little bit and explain your your opinion on it? You know, I don't remember the details of that case very much. Oh. I do remember that it went to the uh, to the Oregon Supreme Court, and I believe they affirmed uh, my opinion. Why don't, why don't you refresh <laughs> yeah. my memory a little bit? So the defendant was charged with two counts of violating concealed carry laws. One violation was con- was carrying a concealed knife and two counts of carrying a loaded firearm in public. I believe it was the loaded firearm that was the issue. Okay. Yeah. And that was that he was convicted under Portland ordinance if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And uh, what was can, can you re- again refresh oh, my yeah. memory on what the precise legal issue was? It had something to do with whether it was capable of firing or something. Before the trial he filed a demur motion to dismiss arguing that the concealed firearm statute statute and the portland ordinance violate the second amendment to the united states constitution right the court denied the demur and motion and defendant was subsequently convicted on all charges on appeal he assigns error error to denial of his demur and motion but only insofar as the ruling rejected his challenges to the portland ordinance could you just tell us about your decision on the state versus christian case it was uh about a defendant charged with uh two counts of concealed carry laws one violation of carrying a concealed knife and two counts of carrying a loaded firearm in public. Well, the the interesting thing about that case is the defendant the defendant challenged the um, challenged the Portland ordinance under the Second Amendment. We we of course would not would not reach that claim unless in, until we decided the case under the Oregon Constitution. And it turns out that they, the case really has very little to do with. The right to bear arms. It's a it's a very complicated case of statutory uh, interpretation, interpreting the uh, the Portland ordinance, which uses the term recklessly, and and the ordinance prohibits recklessly carrying a loaded firearm hmm. in a public place, and the issue is whether or not the term recklessly applied to uh, failing to unload the weapon before you carried it in a public place or uh, carrying it in a public place knowing that it was uh, knowing that it was loaded recklessly uh, in in the law means that uh, you are aware of a serious risk but you take the risk anyways when a reasonable person wouldn't and so we just have this sort of split hairs about uh, about what the term recklessly um, applied to. Could you talk a little bit more about the Oregon gun lobby? I feel like that was a really interesting point. You were talking about of how they are so powerful. They've basically influenced a lot of the uh, law written. Yeah, um, as as you probably as you probably know, Oregon. Once you get outside of the Willamette Valley, actually, once you get outside of this of the city limits of. Uh, of Eugene Corvallis and, and uh, Portland in the Tri-County area mm-hmm. is a very gun-oriented, a very gun-oriented culture. And it's not, it's not gun-oriented in the sense that people form militias um, because, uh, because they fear that 
the government is going to come in with black helicopters and take over. Mm -hmm. It's a rural community, particularly east of the mountains, where there's a, a lot of a lot of hunting, uh, recreational hunting, and also a lot of the use of of firearms to protect livestock and to protect crops. In that sense, uh, the Oregon legislature, which always has to be responsive to the the rural constituency, even though they don't have uh, they don't have a majority of members of the legislature, they 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 still have a very important voice. So, in that sense, the gun lobby, the NRA, the NRA is frequently speaking to a receptive a receptive audience. They understand that Oregon also has uh, a tradition of progressive, pacifist um, politics, mostly in, in the urban areas. So they also understand, in addition to knowing that they're going to be talking to a, a fairly receptive audience, they also understand that they have to be vigilant. Uh, in fact, um, if you get out into the rural areas today, you'll see a bunch of signs on farms that, uh, that are sponsored by a group called Oregon Pushback. I think it's OregonPushback.com. And uh, the signs say, uh, the legislature wants to take away your guns. Mm -hmm. And in every, uh, in every legislative session, there are proposals for various kinds of gun reforms, all of which, all, well, I should say none of which would really offend the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment is, and Oregon's, uh, Oregon's analog to the Second Amendment, contains a lot of exceptions for the right to bear arms. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, all, all, of these, all of these proposed uh, statutes would not really suffer from constitutional infirmity. And, and they do cut back on the NRA's vision of what, what the Second Amendment and, and Oregon's equal in Article 1, Section 27 should mean. They believe that it should be absolute, that you should be able to carry guns in the courthouse, you should be able to carry guns, I suppose, even in the prison when you're visiting or, or something. They take a very absolutist approach. As a result, as a result, they have a very well-funded and well-staffed lobby in in Salem. Mm -hmm. They're they're as I say, they're extremely they're extremely vigilant, uh, and they uh, have been pretty effective, not universally effective, but pretty effective. They had a measure in the legislature this time that I think would have would have um, tightened the restrictions on. Uh, on people who had expressed, I think, suicidal tendencies or were somehow, were somehow a danger to themselves or others that would have allowed law enforcement to provisionally confiscate their weapons until a hearing could be held. Mm -hmm. uh, I, think that, I think that went, went down. Now, well, I know it went down. It went down because it was part of a bargain that the governor made in order to get uh, nine million dollars in, or was it billion? Get a lot of money for schools, um, much to the much to the um, disappointment of the anti-gun lobby. But you know, there's a lot. There was, I'm sure, a lot of behind-the-scenes bargaining that went on mm -hmm. about that, and the uh, 
in the the gun lobby was ultimately successful. Yeah. So, and you talked about how the gun lobby has allowed for, you know, guns to be carried in places that usually they aren't. So we've kind of been talking about uh, guns on campus, and that's kind of an interesting uh, movement that's going on uh, on the University of Oregon campus. So what kind of take do you have on that, and what kind of law goes into that conversation? Well, when I was first when I was first at the University of Oregon, before I went into the, went on the court and into the Department of Justice, I was I was in the student conduct committee at that point also, and at that point, something something came up. A student wanted to get store a, a firearm in a dormitory, and and sort of started citing regulations and statutes that that he thought would have allowed him to do that. And at that point, I wasn't I wasn't chair of the student conduct committee or anything. And my point of view at that at, at that time was, I don't care what they say, I don't care what the regulations say. Uh, this can't be right. Mm-hmm. This can't be right. And I found in all of my in all of my um, experience in the law that uh, when it comes right down to it, there's what we call the absurd result rule, and that is if you interpret a regulation or a statute in such a way as to lead to an obviously absurd result that no rational person could really have intended, sort of an unintended consequence, usually uh, usually, um, you can avoid that result. So that was sort of the, the, the intellectual foundation of my, my statement that this can't possibly happen. Yeah. Um, at this point, um, at this point, I am not intimately familiar with what the regulations are, but I know what the arguments are going to be. The arguments are going to be that there's a state statute that says only the legislature can prohibit bearing arms in public places. Uh, State agencies themselves cannot do it. So um, if if the University of, of Oregon wants to promulgate a regulation in the Student Conduct Code, that would prohibit that. That is going to be the the basis of of the argument. Now, again, it seems to me that it seems to me that if that began to happen, there could be an effective lobbying effort in Salem to prevent it. Because quite simply, college age college age students, firearms, and alcohol. Uh, are, are are not a good are not a good mixture, and I think everybody I think everybody would would well I shouldn't say that I was going to say everybody could agree with that, but the the gun lobby will fight that gun yeah. lobby will fight that they will say if you are if you are old enough to have a concealed carry permit, that means that the state has decided that you are a responsible person and you should be able to do it. I'm not sure how that I'm not sure how that argument would come out. I know how I would come out on it, but. Um, yeah. Yeah, and there's also a, a movement to disarm the uh, yes. University of Oregon police as well. And so, what what kind of law also dictates? Well, um, that depends on whether or not campus security officers are are classified as um, sworn officers. And I know that uh, the campus security the campus security people in at the U of O and around the state desperately wanted to be 
desperately wanted to be considered sworn officers, which would incidentally allow them to carry weapons. But it didn't. It wasn't because they wanted to carry weapons. It's because if you're a sworn officer, you qualify for early retirement. You get your full PERS benefits. Uh, I think at the age of 55 or something. So that was the impetus behind that. I think that I think that uh, that is going to continue to be something of a controversy again. I think I think the administration of the university will weigh in on one side, uh, and uh, some s- student groups will weigh in on the other side. And the NR- NRA will, of course, say that everybody should be allowed to uh, carry firearms. So I have no prediction on how that's going to play out. Yeah. Do you? <laughs> no, no <laughs> clue. <laughs> I, think any of us I believe that um, the incident that really brought that to the forefront occurred at PSU when an armed um, security officer at PSU shot and killed a student who was engaged in a, a fight at a tavern off campus, right off campus. And the security officer thought that the student had a gun, and he didn't, mm-hmm. and shot and killed him. And so that, that sort of stimulated this notion that Campus security officers really shouldn't be shouldn't be armed. One major difference between the Second Amendment and um, Oregon's right to bear arms: for many many years, the United States Supreme Court had held that the Second Amendment only protects um, only protects uh, the right to to form a militia, because the text of the Second Amendment says a well regulated militia being necessary to the protection of the citizens. Um, blah blah blah, and that was that was the law for a very long time until the Heller decision, which was what ten years ago, five ten years ago, where the court discarded this long-standing uh, interpretation of the Second Amendment, um, and that applied only to Washington D.C. And then in a subsequent, I think it was the McDonald case that was um, modified to apply nationwide. In Oregon, that was never that was never an issue. Um, the Oregon right to bear arms doesn't say a well-regulated militia uh, being necessary. It says in order to promote the something along the lines of in order to promote the safety and security of the citizens, mm-hmm. uh, no law shall be passed uh, to infringe on the right to bear arms. Mm-hmm. So that was never that was never an issue uh, in, in Oregon, and in that sense, Oregon's right to bear arms was always, uh, at least until the Heller decision, much more protective of the right to bear arms because you didn't have this qualification of, well, it only applies to militias. That was a great note to end on. Thank you so much for coming in today, Judge David Schumann. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And you can find more Emerald Podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let us know what you think about the content of today's episode on the Daily Emerald website at www.dailyemerald.com or shoot us an email at podcast at dailyemerald.com. Thanks for listening.